Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about loyal lovers and insidious islands. Also, Both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives, meaning you won't have heard them anywhere else. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of A.J. Harvey and Edward Greenberg are voice talents Olivia Steele, Eric Peabody, Jesse Cornett, and Melissa Exelberth. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our Theater of the Minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author A.J. Harvey and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights voice talents Olivia Steele and Eric Peabody. In it, we'll learn about young love in its purest, most powerful, and sinister form. Without further ado, I present to you Together Forever. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Last week, I was alone in my bed. I'm not alone tonight. He's right next to me. He's not supposed to be here, though. Last week, I was a senior in high school and completely in love with Stephen Hooverson. Truth be told, I've been in love with Stephen for years. He was always handsome and popular. I've never been popular. I was an only child, and my mom spent most of her time bouncing from one man's bed to another, usually in a meth-fueled haze. I was often alone for days in our dilapidated trailer. We didn't even have pets. We couldn't afford them. Besides, there were always strays running around the trailer park. A few times, I would drag in some mange-riddled puppy or scrawny kitten, and when my mother finally noticed, she would yell about having another mouth to feed before tossing the animal out the door. As I got older, I would hide the puppy or kitten for a few days. Before my mom could find them, I would smother them under a pillow or drown them in the bathtub. I buried their little bodies under the trailer. That way, I could visit the small mounds of dirt if I was feeling particularly lonely. I was alone at school too, of course. You wouldn't think someone could be lonely surrounded by a classroom full of people your own age, but you'd be wrong. Children have a special way of making someone like me miserable. My clothes were usually dirty or tattered, my hair hanging and greasy strings around my face. It's hard to keep up appearances with donated clothes you couldn't even keep clean because the water was often shut off. My classmates would tease me, call me smelly and that grubby girl and avoid me. Their whispers and giggles trailed after me, as close and familiar as my own shadow. High school kids can be especially cruel. Boys would pretend to flirt with me on a dare. If I ever gave the slightest hint I believed their compliments, they would burst into laughter, running back to their group of friends waiting a few feet away, all of them pointing and doubled over laughing. I hated the stupid sound of their hyena yapping. I learned to keep to myself and avoid talking to anyone. Most of the time, everyone acted like I was invisible. The only good thing about being invisible was being able to watch Steven. When he passed by me in the hallways, I could smell his body wash. My eyes would trail after him, 
drinking in every detail of the way he moved, how his clothes hugged his muscular body, his brilliant smile. In class, I would watch him rub the back of his head when a test question was frustrating. My fingers would twitch on my desk, aching to run my fingers through his hair. Last week, I was tired of being alone. The 27 dirt mounds under the trailer were not enough. I wanted to be with a person. I wanted Steven. It was the week before Valentine's Day. I watched stupid girls giggling as they passed pink cards out to their idiot friends. I watched boyfriends surprise their girlfriends with the standard boring boxes of candy. Even the damn teachers would find gifts on their desks. On Thursday, February 12th, I decided I wouldn't be alone on Valentine's Day. I skipped school and took a bus downtown. I remembered the area from a time when my mother would drag me with her to score drugs. There was a woman in a rundown apartment building who would read palms and whip up hexes and potions. I had some money stashed away from my after-school job flipping hamburgers. The woman's name was Tamra, or Miss Tam Tam. She always gave me the creeps. I remember the night she grabbed me by the shoulders and stared into my eyes. I was in the third grade. My mom had brought me to the building to meet up with a dealer. Mom had hissed at me to keep quiet and not touch anything. As we climbed the dingy stairs, we passed Miss Tam Tam. Her skirts were billowing out behind her with each descending step. My hand involuntarily reached out to caress the colorful silk. Before I knew it, steel talons sank into my shoulders and whirled me around. Sharp, almost black eyes pierced my face. What you know about me, child? Her voice purred like a cat, but there was an undercurrent of hatred and malice. I stammered, my mouth gaping as the air in my throat leaked out, forming no words, only soft grunts. Never mind this idiot girl, Miss Tam Tam. We're just meeting up with Eddie. My mother laughed, her voice small and shaking. Mother pulled me away from Miss Tam Tam. I see you again, child. Miss Tam Tam laughed. You'll need something, and I'll give it, but you won't like it. Again, she cackled, and with a flourish of silks, she continued down the stairs, her humorless chuckles echoing off the peeling walls. I watched her disappear behind a door spray-painted with a neon green skull. Years later... Miss Tam Tam's warning repeated in my head as I stepped off the bus in front of the crumbling apartment building. I waved my hands around my ears as if I could brush the memory of her words away like a troublesome moth. A man was sitting on the building steps, sipping dark brown liquid from a bottle wrapped in a crinkled paper bag. I stepped past him, holding my breath to block out the musky smell of his body odor and pulled open the door to the first floor hallway. A fluorescent light pulsed overhead with a buzzing hum. The flickering light bathed the cracked gray walls in cool light and 
only deepened the corner shadows. Though it was mid-morning, the hallway seemed dark and sepulchral. I walked up the staircase to the third floor, where I found the same glowing green skull, faded, but still menacing, on a battered door. I raised my hand to knock, but before my knuckles could land on the wood, the door slowly creaked open. There was a swampy smell mingled with a metallic scent of blood. Miss Tam Tam's smooth voice slithered from the darkness beyond the door. Here you are again, child. Look how you groan. Come in. I stepped in, and the door closed behind me with a soft click. My eyes adjusted to the dark, and I could see the apartment was a studio. Really just one large room with a small bathroom tucked away in the corner. What could have been the living room held a small round table with two chairs. On the table was a deck of cards and a long, twisting knife. All along the apartment walls were shelves full of jars, strange plants, a few tattered books, and what looked like small bones. The makeshift kitchen was situated on the other side of the room. A large steel pot bubbled on a hot plate set up on a broken dresser. Miss Tam Tam stood next to the pot, slowly stirring her back to me. I slid my backpack off my shoulders and pulled out all the money I had, a hundred dollars. I gripped the wad of cash in my fist and cleared my throat. I... I need a... potion, I said. Do you do that? Miss Tam Tam turned to look at me, nodding twice. I don't know how, but she looked even taller than when I first saw her when I was a kid. She stepped towards me, and I couldn't help but shrink back against the door. Yes, I do. Her voice was clipped, and her black eyes bore into mine. She stopped only a foot away. Thought I could hear the sound of a swarm of bees from somewhere in the room. The soft, buzzing pulsed in time with my heartbeat. A love potion? I asked. Miss Tam Tam threw her head to the side and spat violently onto the stained carpet. Her face twisted with scorn, and she shot forward, closing the distance between us, only inches away. Her lips curled into a sneer, revealing mottled yellow teeth. Love! The word spewed out of her mouth. Slimy droplets of spit flicked onto my face. Stupid child, you sure you think that's what you need? I straightened, willing myself not to blink, and raised the money to my chest. I'm not going to be alone anymore. Miss Tam Tam grunted and took the money from my hand. I exhaled slowly and closed my eyes in an effort to slow down my heartbeat thumping wildly in my chest as she turned towards the kitchen area. I could hear pots banging and Miss Tam Tam muttering to herself. My eyes flew open at once as the terrifying idea flooded my brain. What if the potion accidentally made Steven fall in love with someone else? I didn't know how it all worked. 
I'd certainly seen a movie or two where that mishap occurred. He has to want only me, I insisted. I stepped over to stand near Miss Tam Tam, trying to ignore the acrid smell now rising with the steam over the boiling pot. Of course, child, Miss Tam Tam purred. But it takes something of you to do that. She stepped to me and tilted her head forward, sniffing. The action reminded me of a wolf tracking prey in the snow. I froze in place while she bent lower, weaving her head back and forth across my torso. You have in the moon cycle. I smell it fresh on you. She looked up. Her eyes gleamed as they scanned my stunned face. That blood be the best. She abruptly stood and whirled over to a shelf above the hot plate and returned with a small coffee mug. Take this in there and put your plug in it. She pointed to the cramped bathroom across from the living room. I nodded and took the cup. My body shook as I sat on the toilet with one hand clutching the mug between my legs. I pulled the tampon string, catching the blood-soaked cotton cylinder in the cup with a wet, flunking sound, and set the mug on the back of the toilet, avoiding looking inside and inserted a fresh tampon. Washing my hands in the stained sink, I studied my reflection in the mirror. I looked crazy. My eyes were bulging, wet globes straining from pale skin. Two roaches twitched as they perched on the faucet. <laughs> Even the roaches have someone. I laughed. But it didn't sound like my laugh. It sounded a lot like Miss Tam Tam's horrible, empty, cold laugh. I returned to the kitchen in time to see Miss Tam Tam sprinkling a white powder into the pot. She took the mug from my hands with a monstrous grin. The 13th is a powerful day for the spell, she said. I realized it was Friday the 13th. Perfect. More of that terrible empty laughter wriggled in my throat and I clamped my mouth shut. Miss Tam Tam turned and tossed the bloody contents of the mug into the boiling pot. A hiss of steam, pink in color, escaped the bubbling liquid. My stomach lurched and I wrapped my arms protectively around my body. Miss Tam Tam whispered in a language I never heard before as she stirred the liquid in what looked like very specific rotations. She ladled the thick-looking dark red potion into a small silver flask and turned to me. Just remember, child, he'll be with you forever. No matter what. She intoned her face a statue. Forever, I whispered, and carefully tucked the flask into my backpack. Before she could say another word, I ran from the apartment. Her horrible laughter followed me down the stairs and into the entry hallway. Outside, the sunlight was blinding, and I gulped at the fresh air. On the bus ride home, I began to form a plan. Stephen would be at Jennifer Miller's party. 
I had overheard several of the kids at school talking about Jennifer's kick-ass Friday the 13th party. Jennifer lived in a big, fancy house a few blocks from the school. All the popular kids would be there, and probably a few burnouts too. I figured I could sneak in relatively unnoticed. I was invisible, after all. I'd pour the potion into Stephen's drink the first chance I could. Then, I'd wait. My heart pounded as I imagined having him all to myself. I imagined him holding me, and my cheeks ignited. I imagined not being alone. My mom wasn't home as usual when I arrived back at the trailer. I took a long shower. I tried to wash away any lingering smell that might have contaminated me in that awful apartment. After my shower, I shifted through my mom's closet and pulled out a mini dress. It was black and probably the least revealing outfit she owned. I pulled the stretchy fabric over my body. The dress was a bit loose and hung around my thin frame, but it would do. I took time to brush and braid my hair and even swiped a little mascara onto my eyelashes. It was a special night after all. It was a two-mile walk to the school, and just a couple blocks more to Jennifer's house. I tied my sneakers. No dress shoes for me. The single pair of sneakers was all I had, and I knew I couldn't make the walk wearing my mom's ridiculous slut heels. I stuffed the potion into my jacket pocket and headed down the street. The cold winter wind whipped around my bare legs. Along the walk, I imagined Stephen asking me to the prom. I imagined Stephen proposing. I imagined being with Stephen forever. My pace was slow as I dreamed of never being alone again. The sun had already begun to set when after I left the trailer, and it was getting dark fast. I was almost halfway to the school when thunder rumbled throughout the sky. A light mist of freezing rain fell on me and I pulled my thin jacket around me as tightly as possible, thankful to feel the comforting weight of the flask in my pocket. A car splashed past me and jerked to a halt before reversing. I knew that car. It was a completely refurbished 1976 Dodge Charger, cherry red and sexy as hell. It was Stephen's car. I had overheard him talking about it several times. He restored it with his dad. It was one of my favorite late-night fantasies to imagine Stephen's body pressed against mine in the back seat of that car. I blinked in the increasing rainfall as the driver's window lowered to reveal Stephen's beautiful face, smiling with concern. You need a ride? He asked. I could already smell him, and the warmth flowed through my body. I couldn't believe my luck. Uh, yes, please. I stuttered and hurried to the passenger door. The lock clicked and I scrambled in out of the rain. I couldn't help but grin like an idiot at him while I clicked my seatbelt. I noticed he wasn't wearing his. <laughs> Such a naughty boy. So sexy. I shivered and whispered a thank you. No problem. He said and began driving. Where to? 
Oh, I was going to Jennifer's party, I answered. I heard it was going to be cool. To my horror, he started laughing. My stomach sank as if he chuckled like someone would if a small child told a knock-knock joke. I don't think that's a good idea, he said after a minute. He eased his foot off the accelerator and I could feel the car slowing. He had a half-smile on his lips. A pitying smile. He pitied me. My blood started to boil. Listen, you know the kids there are just going to make fun of you. You won't have any fun around them. They can be kind of mean. He explained, still wearing that stupid nice guy smile. His hands turned the steering wheel, pointing the car in the other direction. He was taking me back home. Back to that empty trailer with only my dead pets for company. Back to being alone. The rain was pouring and flashes of lightning illuminated the empty sidewalks and manicured lawns leading to cozy houses full of happy little perfect families. Just like Stephen's family. He reached out to pat my shoulder and my vision flooded with red. I didn't need his fucking pity. He was supposed to love me, damn it! My hand moved on its own, shooting out to grab the back of his head and slamming his shocked face against the driver's side window with all my strength. His body tensed in surprise and his legs straightened, jamming hard on the pedal. The engine growled and the car rocketed forward, wheels spinning on the rain-slick streets. I could hear myself screaming with rage just before the car crashed into a massive oak tree. There was a wet, crunching sound when his face hit the steering wheel. No airbags in his precious charger. Everything seemed to be in slow motion. I could see the top of the steering wheel disappear above his nose. His eyes popped like little grapes before the steering wheel pushed into his head. Blood exploded onto the dashboard and splashed across the windshield. The seatbelt tightened around my body, squeezing the air from my chest. My head snapped back and hit the seat with a thump. Dark butterflies blotted my vision. I heard the same horrible buzzing sound from Miss Tam Tam's apartment. Like a thousand bees were inside my head. I started to sink into the dark. Lightning flashed milliseconds before a booming crack of thunder erupted in the sky. I jumped and looked out my window to see if anyone was watching. The curtains covering the windows of the surrounding houses remained shut. Few lights were on, mostly the blue haze of television sets. My brain went into overdrive, trying to figure out what to do next. The overwhelming reality of what I had just done washed over me, and my lips trembled as tears fell fat and hot on my cheeks. On impulse, I pulled the flask out of my pocket. It was magic, right? Miss Tam Tam said we would be together forever. Maybe it could fix this. I set the flask on the dashboard and pulled as hard as I could on Stephen's shoulders. After several minutes of straining, there was a squelching, sloppy noise, followed by what sounded like a champagne cork popping. Stephen's head flew back against a seat, and a fresh spray of blood decorated the ceiling. A wail surged out of my throat when I saw his face. Once beautiful green eyes were gone, 
Instead, there was a deep crevice where his skull had shattered and collapsed inward. There was nothing but a mass of blood and white, runny fluid. What was left of his eyes? Trailing down his face into his open mouth. I cradled his face with both my hands and whimpered as I leaned forward to kiss the top of his lip. I tasted the blood and swallowed. I needed to fix him. I grabbed the flask, snapped off the top and poured the potion into his mouth. Before it could dribble out, I pushed up on his chin to close his mouth, lifting upward to tilt his head back so the potion could slide down his throat. I held his head that way for at least a minute, waiting for even a hint of something. Any sign it was working. There was nothing. I screamed in frustration and released his chin. His body slumped to lean against me. He looked like he was sleeping. I gently kissed the top of his head before I shifted out from under his body. I opened the passenger door and backed out, careful to let Stephen's body slide all the way down onto the seat. I started running. I ran the entire way home, my chest burning. I slammed the door to the trailer shut, tore off my soaking jacket and kicked off my wet shoes. Walking down the hallway, I peeled off the dress and finally climbed into bed. I cried myself to sleep and dreamed of Stephen looking at me with no eyes. The following day, the news reported of a high school student involved in a tragic accident. The community was shocked. The footage continued, showing stupid girls clutching each other and sobbing about how much everyone loved him. I felt so empty and more alone than I had ever felt. I crawled under the trailer and lay next to my buried pets for most of the day. Late in the evening, I finally crawled out from under the trailer and went inside. My mom still wasn't home. I tried to eat some of the stale crackers left in the kitchen, but they were sawdust in my mouth. I gave up and shuffled into the living room and turned on the TV. The news reporter gave an update about a small flask found in the car at the crime scene. Police suspected drunk driving. I closed my eyes and I could see Stephen's mouth. Bloody, still beautiful. I spent two hours in the living room, watching the news, afraid of hearing any witnesses seeing a woman fleeing the scene. There was no reason to suspect me, of course. No one had seen Stephen pick me up in his car. No one could ever connect us. He was loved. And I was invisible. That night, I crawled into my bed and pulled the threadbare blanket over my head. I was attempting to will myself to sleep when I heard the faintest creak near my door. Slowly, I pulled the blanket past my eyes and looked at the doorway. Someone was standing there, in the dark. Someone 
tall. I blinked, and the figure lurched forward in a jerky motion. I scrambled to sit up as the figure moved closer. The moonlight from my window threw a small square of light in the middle of the room. The figure moved into the light, and I could see its face. It was Stephen. Beautiful, mangled Stephen, with no eyes. He was naked, and a dark, jagged Y-shaped cut was stitched closed on his torso. An autopsy scar. He stood in the light, his body swaying slightly. He looked like he was trying to hear my breathing. I whispered his name, and his head jerked to face me. His body moved quickly, scuttling in that strange jerky motion, almost like a marionette puppet with a lunatic pulling the strings. He banged his shins on the foot of my bed, and then Spider crawled over me until his face was inches from mine. He didn't smell like body wash. He smelled very dead. He craned his neck forward until his lips rested against mine. Dry, flaking, cold lips covered mine. My first kiss. The smell of rot enveloped me and I gagged. He shifted his body off mine and lay next to me. His arm draped across my stomach. Forever. He croaked. Forever, I answered, and snuggled up against him. I finally wasn't alone. I hope you enjoyed Together Forever as written by A.J. Harvey and voiced by Olivia Steele and Eric Peabody. To find more from A.J. Harvey, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harvey, spelled H-A-R-V-E-Y, and you'll be redirected to her author profile on our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com. Voice actress Olivia Steele's work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. Olivia Steele also has her own YouTube channel, Scarily Olivia. Be sure to check it out when you can. I assure you, you won't be disappointed. And if you enjoyed Mr. Peabody's performance, you can hear more of him on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, where he holds the second place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition. You'll also find more of his work on his website at www.vikingguitar.com. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Edward Greenberg and performed by Jesse Cornett and Melissa Exelberth. In it, we'll be introduced to Dr. Annalise Fowler, religious anthropologist, recounting her experiences working on neurobiological research on Cora Island. The research goes from exhilarating to horrifying under the obsessive leadership of her charismatic colleague. Now, without further ado, I present to you the Faith Molecule. Dr. Annalise Fowler. Annie. No one calls me Annalise. 
<laughs> All right, then. Annie. You can call me Dr. Fowler. Agent Romero slips a cigarette out of his pack. Uh, you mind if I smoke, Doctor? Would you like one? I would mind, and no, I would not like a cigarette. Let's just get on with it. He sighs, slipping his pack into his jacket pocket. Sure thing, Doctor. Dr. Fowler is tired. Her eyes are red and swollen as she asks, How much do you know about what happened on Cora Island? We've spoken to a few people, and we need your help to get a fuller picture of the events. Do you know enough to believe what I'll tell you? We're here to listen to whatever you have to say, Dr. Fowler. What's even the point? Do you really think you can build a case against Lotus? It's a joke. How do I know you're not working for them? Just playing with me, seeing if I'll talk. We work for the United States government, Doctor. If you'd like to see our credentials again, we're more than happy to comply. Though we don't hold the interest of private corporations. Annie laughs at that. <laughs> All right, Boy Scout. Do your supervisors even know you're here? State police called us at the Washington State FBI office and requested assistance. And once we finished our investigation, we'll report our findings to the assistant director. Agent Romero looks sheepish, slightly guilty. Sounds like a no. Well, that's a good thing. Agent, I'll tell you what happened. Just make me a promise. Promise you won't hand over everything? Just make some copies of our testimonies, of, of photo evidence. Don't let them bury it. It's standard procedure to duplicate and back up all records from an investigation. Agent Romero says emotionlessly. Well, where should I start? From the beginning. You hold a PhD in religious anthropology, correct? Now what were you doing at a biological research facility? Annie lets out a deep breath. Dr. Randall and Lotus Incorporated invited me. It was a spectacular opportunity. The chance to work with Dr. Randall was tantalizing. His work in neurology and pioneering efforts in brain mapping technology changed his own feel of study and others. Why, it wasn't until his first few published papers on neurotheology that I found some small vindication among my peers. And why is that? Well, my field, broadly stated, is a comparative study of world religions through history and how religion has affected developing culture. It's nothing new. As soon as humans found the means to travel far enough to encounter multiculturalism, we've seen clear through the veil of magical thinking. Zeophanes, the Greek writer and thinker, observed that the gods of Ethiopians were inevitably dark-haired with flat noses, while those of the Thracians were blonde with blue eyes. So as humans, we create our gods, not the other way around. Naturally, the most respected work in my field has always concerned the intersection of religion and other important institutions that affect our lives, such as politics and art. My focus has always been on religious ecstasy. 
I think most of my peers thought I was chasing rabbits down holes. Religious ecstasy? It concerns trance-like states that people achieve through effort in rituals or inadvertently through exposure to and acceptance of religious or magical thinking. It can range from church congregates speaking in tongues to great thinkers and artists producing their best work while claiming to be guided or influenced by the gods. Most of my peers considered it no more than a placebo effect until Dr. Randall's work confirmed that there is something unique happening in the human brain during these experiences. In that way, our interests and work have always been compatible. I'd been elated to learn that he wanted my assistance in his work. It would elevate my career. Not only would I get to expand my hypotheses on the fundamental biological need for religion, but I'd have my name on papers that would influence the fields of neurology, anatomy, and evolutionary biology. And I'd get the respect of the medical research field, or, as my father always said, real doctors. Annie smiles painfully at her sentiment. Lotus would be funding the research. It would be done at a private research facility on Cora Island. They said it was to protect their interests in the project. They wanted all the research to remain private until they were ready to publish. With Dr. Randall's history in developing new tools for brain mapping, it only made sense that they wanted to protect any potential patents to arise from the work. It was all very hush-hush. I wasn't even exactly sure what we'd be working on at the facility. They only used the vaguest terms to describe it. Research into the evolutionary biology of neurotheology. But I did do some research into the island before traveling there. Cora Island has a strange history. Do you know about it? Yes, there was some sort of hippie cult there in the 70s, but... They abandoned the place. Wasn't there some big-shot author that used to be part of it? He wasn't part of the community. He just visited. And he wasn't just some big-shot author. The man won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He's not the only great mind to have spent time on Cora Island with the unnamed community, or the hippie cult, as you called them, the people that lived there didn't just abandon the place. They disappeared. And so often, in fact, that many question if they ever existed at all, or simply just a myth. I didn't believe it at first. All the quotes from those that visited the island during that time are secondhand. They've never spoken on record about it. They all remark on the music. Apparently, the community on Cora Island played the most beautiful music. More than one person called it impossible music. But no recordings exist, just the rumor that it either attracted great thinkers or inspired them. I'm sorry, Doctor, but that sounds a little outlandish. Certainly. And as I said, 
There's no proof it ever happened. It could just be a myth about an island cult, an old legend with some basis rooted in reality. The island has been host to many religious communities and grotesqueries throughout its history. The earliest records of Cora Island relate to a small sect of Christian extremists in the mid-18th century. They were a group of holy rollers who achieved a sort of religious ecstasy through violently rolling on the ground. They were left alone for some years before they started converting a few lost souls from the mainland. When friends and family would visit and observe the fleshy canvas of bruise and blood that their loved ones had developed, they decried the rollers and forced them to evacuate the island. Next came a series of grisly murders reminiscent of the Donner Party, where a group of sailors was lost at sea and sought refuge on Cora Island. What remained of the crew were found in the coastal cave system. No one knows why they all went in, presumably to seek shelter from the weather, but the forensic evidence was clear. There were prominent teeth marks on the bones. They had resorted to cannibalism. Real macabre stuff. I had written off the strange location for the facility as being relatively cheap land to purchase as a result of its history. However, now that I think about how much money Lotus was willing to spend at every turn of our research, that explanation seems less likely. No, I think that Dr. Randall had wanted that island specifically. Exactly why that is, I can't tell you. I can only hypothesize that it has to do with the collective unconscious that he believed would affect the research. It was another variable in his experiments. As for the facility itself, well, you've seen it. It's unique. The architecture was so strange. I remember walking from my living quarters to the laboratories like a rat prancing merrily through a maze, salivating for my reward. This too, I think, was intentional. Dr. Randall often asked me about the history of labyrinths, as they'd been used in meditation, religious practices, and covered mythologies since well before the Greeks. When I first met Dr. Randall, I was immediately reminded of my father. He was stern, unapologetic, and fiercely intelligent. Yet his charisma was undeniable. His passion for the work was a constant source of inspiration to us. And the way he spoke about it made you feel like you were not just a scientist, but an explorer on a grand quest for the truth. And in a way, we were. The research itself concerned the neurological effects of religious ecstasy. Why does the, the brain even have the mechanism to enable such a phenomenon? What is the evolutionary advantage of these behaviors? Of course, we were looking at the problem all wrong, but I wonder if Dr. Randall knew that from the beginning. <laughs> Perhaps. But I... I don't think he would have asked for my assistance if that were the case, unless he just wanted one more member for his cult. She smiles ruefully. That's 
what it ended up as, anyway. What do you mean by that? He was revered. He led us. More than that, though, he performed miracles. We weren't just breaking new ground. We were breaking the whole goddamn system of thinking. When I first arrived, I couldn't believe it. I thought they were tricking me. Mice. Presenting material culture. Singing, even. I've heard of whale songs, but mouse songs. Slow down. Mouse songs? We'll need you to elaborate. Dr. Randall had invented new brain mapping technology. For the first time, we could track neurotransmitters in parts per million while simultaneously measuring electrical activity throughout the synaptic connections. Agent. <sighs> Dr. Randall had a whole and direct view of neurological functioning. As a result, he had discovered a new neurotransmitter that related directly to areas of the brain stimulated while in states of religious ecstasy. We called it phytamine. The organic chemistry team had already synthesized phytamine in an ingestible that could pass the blood-brain barrier. A phytamine supplement resulted in the strangest behaviors in mice, including singing. But chanting might be more accurate. It was a cognitive leap that nobody had expected, and it informed the structural basis of my work in the coming months. Phytamine directly tied to evolutionary cognitive development. The brain is an incredibly complex organ. However, after seeing such extraordinary strides in the cognitive development of mice after administering phytamine, we began to believe that this singular neurotransmitter was responsible for many of the leaps in learning that define cultural development. Okay, so can you bring that down a level for me? Well, I think of it like this. The first time humans created fire, it was phytamine which flooded their brain. Same goes for the wheel or gunpowder. So it's inspiration. Kind of like what you were talking about before. Religious ecstasy. Exactly like religious ecstasy, Agent. It's the physical stimulation that creates it. It proved that my hypotheses were on the right track, and I instantly became enthralled with the project. There were side effects, but... We thought those would be hammered out in time. What kind of side effects? Sleep loss, most notably in the mice. More side effects cropped up later with the pigs, spiders, and chimps. And with people? Agent Romero inquires. Fowler grows quiet at the question. Now let's get back on track, Doc. That sounds like the work was exciting. 
when and how did it all go downhill? It all went wrong because of my fundamental misunderstanding of what we were studying. And what do you mean by that exactly? Well, as fringe as my views on religious anthropology may have been, I was still intrinsically misguided, still influenced by the core belief of my peers. That is to say that humans create our gods. So you believe that gods created humans? No, not exactly. I've started to believe that our cognitive evolution is a tightrope walk. So long as we stay balanced, we stay lofty. But if we were to fall, the writhing mass of the glimmering and the grotesque would surely swallow us. I'm not sure I understand. I'm sure you don't, but maybe you will. We didn't understand. Side effects. That was all. We moved forward with the pigs. Again, we observed the most spectacular behaviors, the most interesting of which was basic arithmetic. Not just counting, but the manipulation of numbers via addition, multiplication, etc. I remember seeing a video of a horse that could multiply. How's that special? That horse agent was trained to follow a series of orders. It wasn't doing arithmetic. How could you tell that the pigs were? It was clear that they were counting their steps while they danced. Danced? I can't think of a better word than that. To be honest, it was closer to the spastic convulsion seen in churchgoers, taken over by the Holy Spirit, or or the possessions of voodoo practitioners as they communicate with the lower spirits and gods and keepers of the veil. The synchronization of the pig's movements led us to observe that these behaviors were more than just seizures. The counting of their steps led us to believe that it was a routine, and they continued to develop more complex behaviors from there. Dr. Randall was excited. He demanded that we increase their dosage, although we still had a lot of research to do at that current stage. That was the first time that we broke protocol. And what happened to the pigs? Well, they began rolling in the dirt in synchronization, creating sort of mm, mandalas left imprinted there. And then they would trample it all clean again and start over. But Throughout the night, they had started to uh, exhibit cannibalistic behaviors. There was only one pig left by the morning, and it was summarily disposed of. You said that was the first time that you broke protocol? The first that I knew of. Already the facility was splitting up into factions. Those who saw themselves still as purely scientists and those who saw themselves as explorers of a new frontier, willing to sacrifice some of their principles if it meant progress. And which camp were you in, Dr. Fowler? Oh, the former. 
But Dr. Randall didn't need ideologies to control me. No, looking back on it, all he needed was to show me a little care and affection, like a father figure. I loved him for that. Briefly. He praised my work and offered guidance, bringing new life to ideas I had let fade. He defended me and my work from some of the neurologists who felt that my perspective was only speculative and likely to hinder their research progress. When I found out about the Rushed Pig project, I was ready to ignore what were, in, in retrospect, obvious signs of Dr. Randall's escalating obsession. After that, he used people's conviction against them, threatening to inform Lotus Inc. of their breaches of protocol. Actions like that would not only get them kicked off of the project, but would mar their name in the scientific community. No one wants to work with someone with a history of unethical research. Although, I now believe that Lotus wouldn't have cared. It was an empty threat that Dr. Randall used to increase his control. He stepped far over the line, though, when he started dabbling in human experimentation. Was Lotus Inc. aware of this? Agent Romero inquires. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they were. After everything that happened, I've concluded that they were surveilling us 24 hours a day, but they never intervened in the weeks leading up to the incident. Dr. Randall and his... <laughs> explorers... had begun the self-administration of phytamine in small amounts, and their work began to progress at spectacular rates. Many of them were coming over to my side of thinking that some part of this tied to all cognitive evolution, as opposed to a common heuristic. They also became secretive and difficult to talk to about anything outside of work discussions. How so? I imagine a group of neurologists and biochemists have great conversations outside of work. Very funny, Agent. It wasn't like that. They just wouldn't stop talking about their dreams. At the cafeteria, in the gym, always talking about dreams. If you brought up a book you were reading, they would tie it back into their dreams. Everything was about them, their work, and their dreams, and nothing else. If you let them go on about their dreams for too long, they would go into a kind of trance state and start babbling in nonsensical gibberish for a moment before, before snapping out of it and going back into detail about their experiences. And what was the nature of these dreams? Well, they were just dreams, like any other. Some of them were incredibly mundane. Others were outlandish. It was just like anyone else telling you about a dream that they had, but oh, there was one thing about it that I found interesting. None of them had dreams with loved ones, friends or, or relatives present. The only people ever present in their dreams, if anyone, would be other people from the facility, 
Of course, that could just be a subconscious effect resulting from our isolation from the outside world. Still, I found it odd. Did you know that they were experimenting on themselves? I was made aware by Dr. Randall in the beginning. I advised against it, but he convinced me that he had it under control. How did he manage that? He revealed that he had been self-administering phytamine for some time, that the process was safe, and that it had improved the quality of his work. I was worried, extremely so, but Dr. Randall had this way about him. It was so difficult to question his decisions, like a child's complete faith in a parent. I felt that he must know what's best. I refused to participate in the study, though I must confess I quickly ended up wishing I had. Despite their odd talk of dreams, the rest of the group had shown incredible improvements in their projects. They were smarter than all of us, all of a sudden. I wasn't alone in my envy. Others had taken notice, too, and one by one, Dr. Randall incorporated them into his group of explorers. There were holdouts, of course, those who refused to join until all the proper precautions and the studies were executed and conducted before human testing should happen. Maybe even a few that were unaware anything was happening. And you were one of the holdouts? For a time but I did eventually join the study. As an anthropologist, I felt that I needed first-hand experience of what was going on. I needed to study the phenomena from all angles. One cannot simply publish a paper about the influence of hallucinogenic mushrooms on early shamanistic traditions without having tried hallucinogenic mushrooms themselves. And what was it like, the phytamine? Well, the effect weren't immediately noticeable. I felt the same. My thinking was the same. I quickly found out, though, that I fell into trance states quite easily. What do you mean by that? Hmm, have you ever been solving a puzzle, like a crossword or a Sudoku, and all of a sudden you slip into a, a kind of flow and the answers begin to pop out without much thought at all. Or, or have you ever been driving somewhere, like to the bank or to work, and when you get there you find that you have completely forgotten the drive? Not even forgotten. It feels like you just weren't conscious for it. It was like a mix of those. A kind of out-of-body flow state. Those trance sequences lasted longer and longer as time went on. After two weeks, it felt as though I spent most of my waking hours in a trance-like state. My sleep had become invaded by the most vivid dreams. And, honestly, it felt great. I never felt lethargic or unmotivated. Everything flowed so smoothly and just made sense, even though a part of me knew it didn't make much sense at all. Everything felt very easy, and that started to make me nervous. 
So, in a brief moment of clarity, I decided that I would stop taking the Phytamine supplement. Just like that? You were out of the study? <laughs> Not exactly. Because it wasn't really a study. It wasn't sanctioned. It didn't follow its own guidelines. At this point, it really had become a cult. It was really difficult to see any of this through the haze of my experience. So it wasn't until I stopped taking it that I noticed. I accepted my daily doses, but I would secretly throw them out. I went through a very low-level withdrawal phase. Phytamine hadn't done any damage. My brain reverted to how it operated before without any harm. Only I hadn't felt things outside of trance for so long I, I wasn't used to it. While taking Phytamine, I never got tired. I knew exactly when to sleep, and I went to sleep exactly then. I didn't get hungry, but I knew that I had to eat, and exactly when. So, then I would eat. All these normal sensory feelings like weariness and hunger were coming back to me, and it was a little overwhelming. The strangest lingering effect was that I would wake up at precisely three in the morning every day, and I'd feel an urge to get out of bed and go for a walk. The first few nights I tried to ignore it and get myself back to sleep, but eventually the pull was too great. I gave in and I followed my feet. The corridors of the residential area were dark. I didn't have any particular destination in mind, but it just felt right to be walking in the direction I was heading. The whole place is a maze. Even during the bustling daylight hours, I would sometimes get anxious finding my way through the halls. I wasn't nervous now, though. My mind was given over to a sort of reflex. I knew exactly where I was going, like I had made this walk before. It wasn't long before I heard something, a faint choir of whispers echoing down the darkened, sterile walls. My instincts pulled me toward the noise, and then the noise itself pulled me onwards. It was absolutely beautiful. As I drew closer, it defined itself in human voices, all singing in tones I'd never imagined to be possible. The notes penetrated deep into my consciousness. I crept up to a doorway leading to a large surgical theater, and I realized the singing was coming from within. I peeked my head inside. The theater met full capacity. Probably two-thirds of the facility staff were inside. They stood along the observation deck, all of them entranced and singing, their voices rising louder now. It was so divine, but it was getting louder and louder. The sounds they made went from instilling an unexpected peacefulness into something overwhelming and unbearable, like a, a soft light getting brighter and brighter until the illumination presented itself as blinding and painful. Dr. Randall was lying on the operating table. His voice was the loudest of all, resonating from what looked like his unconscious body. His voice grew so loud it started to break. His 
body started to convulse. And it was doing something else, too. What exactly, Dr. Fowler? Well, it looked like his body was bubbling. Like something was trying to get out from inside him. Bumps rising and falling, getting larger and larger until some of them split, creating huge lacerations. When the swelling receded in that area, the wound would seal rapidly. It was like his body was boiling from the inside out, bursting into wounds, and then the laceration would seal itself back up, but not heal completely. Before long, his body had become scarred, bruised and reddened everywhere. His exposed torso looked like a topographical map. The pain must have been excruciating. The singing had turned into something else now. Horrible, though still awe-inspiring. The choir had started convulsing. They weren't going through the same sort of metamorphosis that Dr. Randall was, but it was terrible all the same. It was a great writhing mass of seizures and screaming. However, the movements and sounds, as grotesque and horrible as they were, still denoted some sort of organized collaboration. A clockwork performance in chaos. I ran as fast as I could. By the time I reached the end of the corridor, I heard splintering of wood and looked back to see Dr. Randall's explorers crashing out of the surgical theater. They acted with the urgency and violence of a trapped crowd trying to escape a burning building, all rushing the door at once, clawing, trampling, and attacking one another to get out, gouging aimlessly. I saw one woman's eye speared through as a doctor I had once shared lunch with dug his finger deep into her skull before forcing his way forward. Once they managed to make it out, they moved ahead at full bore. Their faces were a contorted mess of frenzy and murder. I didn't look back again. Not, not because I didn't want to, but because I was quickly becoming lost. Fear had taken over and I was running aimlessly. I could hear the grotesque choir echoing through the halls. Then they must have reached the resident area, because new, more human screams added themselves to the chorus. I found a room facing the exterior of the building and climbed out of a window. A fleet of vans was pulling up to the facility. Armed men and women were pouring out of them. They didn't have any sort of police or SWAT uniform, though. They were Lotus. They seemed too prepared for this, prepared for a violent outcome and a speedy response. That scared me. So I concluded that the safest thing for me to do was to lay low for a while, at least until the sounds of gunfire stopped. I presume that the noise is what led to the police showing up sometime later. Once I saw the sheriff, I left my hiding spot along the tree line and begged him to get me off that fucking island. How was it possible? What happened to Randall? I couldn't tell you. Not for certain. 
I could hypothesize that his prolonged exposure to what was most likely increasing doses of phytamine raised him to a higher level of consciousness. This potentially came with an incredible amount of awareness and control of bodily processes that we can normally only perform unconsciously. Like the cellular regenerative healing of an open wound, for instance. So then, what was he trying to do? I don't have enough information to give you an opinion. Was Randall alive when you last saw him? Agent Romero asks. You haven't found a body, have you? Answer the question, please, Doctor. Logically, I can't imagine a body undergoing that type of violent metamorphosis without it being fatal. But I felt that he was alive just the same. Do you know where he is? How would I know that, Agent? And do you have any ideas? Why would I tell you if I did? Agent Romero takes a deep breath. Because Lotus went in there and swept the place. We've got no leads. Maybe you don't trust me, but the fact is, Lotus is almost certainly looking for Randall, if they don't have him already. So if you have any interest in Randall facing justice, give me something to use. Annie studies Romero's face for a long while, her eyes preening each nuance of his expression. He'd go somewhere like Cora Island, with a history. The collective unconscious of a place is important. L'esprit de terroir, as he once put it. He'll also need access to followers and certain ingredients for the organic synthesis. Unless he already has a stockpile of phytamine. I'm going to need a budget. Nothing crazy, but I will need some money for the research. Some protection, obviously. And access to everything you know. Excuse me? Consultant. Talk to whomever it is you need to talk to and get me on the team. Let's find Dr. Randall. I hope you enjoyed The Faith Molecule, as written by Edward Greenberg and voiced by Jesse Cornett and Melissa Exelberth. If you enjoyed Mr. Cornett's performance, you can hear more of him on the amazing No Sleep Podcast, where his vocal performances and audio productions are available for your enjoyment. Melissa Exelberth's vocal talents can also be found right here on our very own YouTube channel, as well as on her website, melissaexelberth.com. To find more of author Edward Greenberg, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Greenberg, spelled G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com. Now our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and please leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, 
to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Segment final sign-off. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.